Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon discusses what's important to know about scoliosis and other spinal deformities. The cases that do need an operation, really, especially in adults, is when their quality of life becomes affected to the part where they can't uh, engage in the activities that they want. A researcher in neurosurgery talks about the etiology of hydrocephalus and the methods he believes will help treat the condition of fluid on the brain. Shunts have changed the way that people with hydrocephalus are treated. In the past, uh, all patients with hydrocephalus were doomed to die. And an endocrinologist goes over recent research into type 2 diabetes in young people. First of all, some of the medications that work well in adults don't work as well in some children who develop type 2 diabetes. All that plus the healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about hydrocephalus and a new way of thinking about how to treat the condition of fluid on the brain. Then, we'll go over recent research into type 2 diabetes in young people with an endocrinologist from Upstate's Jocelyn Diabetes Center. But first, we'll explore spinal deformities with a neurosurgeon. When it's severe, scoliosis and other adult spinal deformities may require surgery. And here to talk about how that's done is Dr. Michael Galgano. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Upstate. Thank you for being here and welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thank Galgano. Thank you for having me, Amber. Now, scoliosis is a, a spinal curvature. Um, is this something people are born with or is it something that develops over time? Uh, both, actually. So there's the pediatric causes and then there's adult causes. Uh, we definitely do see congenital scoliosis where a child may be born with it. Sometimes a child can get what's called acquired scoliosis where maybe they have a spinal tumor or a spinal cord tumor and that could render the spine in a curved state. Other times it could be what's called idiopathic, whereas the child grows into adolescence, it may develop for reasons unknown. And other times the brain can misfire and it could actually cause asymmetry of the muscle contractions around the spine and that could cause scoliosis and that's called neuromuscular. So those are really the four main types of pediatric causes. As far as adults, we can see an extension from adolescent scoliosis called adult idiopathic scoliosis, or we may see what's called degenerative scoliosis, where basically the joints and the discs degenerate asymmetrically. So those are really the six main types that we see. Is it a factor of age in that case for an adult, or, or do you know ahead of time that you're prone to develop this as you T get older? Typically, it's a factor of age. So as we age, the facet joints around the spine degenerate, the discs, which are the cushions between the vertebrae, degenerate, and sometimes they degenerate not at the same rate on each side of the spine. And you can imagine if you have one side of the disc that's normal and the other side is abnormal, over time, if that happens at multiple levels, the spine may be rendered in a curved state. Interesting. Now, scoliosis, but uh, other adult spinal deformities, what are, what are the other things that you typically see? The, the other type is what's called kyphosis. So kyphosis is when the spine is bent forward from a back-to-front orientation. Scoliosis is when the spine is rotated in a 360-degree, three-dimensional aspect, and it could also be curved in a more side-to-side -side or lateral orientation. And sometimes we see them both in the same patient. It's called kyphoscoliosis. 
Oh, you could have both. You could have both in the same Holy patient. Cow. Okay. Well, now how does somebody typically learn that they've got a problem with their spine or the deformity? So if it's a child, a lot of times the parents may notice or during a school assessment, they may notice that the child does not have a straight spine. Um, a lot of adolescents may notice if they have what's called a rib hump or if they notice that the shoulder or the hip is asymmetric and it becomes a cosmetic issue. And a lot of times the adults actually may not realize that they have scoliosis because in the adult it tends to be more in the lower lumbar spine, not so much in the thoracic spine where it's more noticeable. So it might not be obvious to the, I don't know, naked eye. It may not be, exactly. It may not be obvious to the naked eye, especially in the adult patients. A lot of times the adult patients are much larger. They have more abdominal girth. So sometimes it is more difficult to see unless you take an x-ray or a CAT scan. It, does it ever, uh, is it ever caused by sort of bad posture or a woman carrying a, a too heavy purse all her life on one side? Uh, so, so there's definitely bad posture related to kyphosis for sure. If someone may, uh, some people develop what's called fatty degeneration of their paraspinal musculature. So basically as people age, um, sometimes the muscles are not very robust and they're replaced by fat. And what happens is that the spine cannot hold itself in an upright erect position. And that's really when it's more posture related. And sometimes it's not necessarily the patient's fault. They may not know that they harbor this, this fatty degeneration, um, if you will. So why is this a problem? Why is a deformity? So a, a lot of times it's not a problem. I would say most cases of scoliosis that I see don't actually need an operation. Uh, but the cases that do need an operation, really, especially in adults, is when their quality of life becomes affected to the part where they can't uh, engage in the activities that they once were doing. So let's say they were golfing or doing yoga and things like that. When a patient comes to my office and they have a significant scoliosis and they say, doc, I, you know, I can't engage in these activities that I love to do anymore. That's really when it becomes a problem for the patients when they become very debilitated and inactive. So they may find out they have it and, and go on living with it for a while, but it, it, but it progresses. In, in, in adults, if they have degenerative scoliosis, they could definitely progress at about three to four degrees per year. If they have an extension of a childhood scoliosis, they typically will not progress once they've reached their maximal growth potential at the age of 18 or 19. All right. Does scoliosis or kyphosis, do they ever get better on their own? They, they typically don't. Um, that being said, there's a lot of uh, modalities that can be undertaken other than surgery to help them get better, such as bracing and casting in children so that you could mold the spine into a more erect position so that as they age, the spine becomes more straight without an actual operation. Oh. But typically, scoliosis will not get better by itself. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Michael Gagano, and our subject is um, scoliosis, kyphosis, and other spinal deformities. So I wanted to ask you how you assess someone when they end up in your office, because maybe this is an issue that they've talked to their primary care doctor about, but eventually it um, is bothering them so much that they want to look at surgical options, right? Sure. So how does that begin? What is the first appointment like with you? What do you look for? And so the first thing it really is just a meet and greet. It, it's really... Uh, frowned upon to book somebody for an operation despite how bad they may look at their first clinic visit. So typically with these types of patients, they're very complex. You want to meet and greet them, have them come back and forth to your clinic multiple times to establish a good rapport. So that's really the first thing, just getting to know the patient, uh, gaining their trust, because if you do have to operate, these are very large operations. 
Uh, but as far as what we do is in terms of assessment, typically we'll get what's called upright x-rays. Those are the first thing is that you stress the spine, you have them stand upright, and you see what the curve looks like. And then you'll have them bend side to side to see if the curve is mobile. And then I'll lay them down and take x-rays as well. Because sometimes the curve can do different things based on the position that you have the patient laying down in. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and you also, you, you get to know them, uh, their medical history, right? Absolutely. Uh, everything else that's Absolutely. going Especially on. with adult patients. Um, you know, with adolescent patients, they're typically healthy, but with adults, they may have heart disease. Maybe they've had a history of cancer. Maybe they have osteopenia or osteoporosis or bone or poor bone health. And all of these factors come into account when you're taking care of the adult population. Well, when you get the x-rays back and you look at the bone structure and everything, do you have to decide whether you can do something to fix them? I mean, is that a question or are you... Can you do something? It's, something can certainly be done, but it really matters how poor their quality of life is, especially for the adult patients. And sometimes in the children, the answer is there for you. Let's say they have a spinal tumor or an infection that's caused the spine to become scoliotic, or they have a syndrome with neuromuscular scoliosis, and then they hence have restrictive lung disease because of that. Your answer is there already, and those really need to be fixed. But as far as adults, it becomes more of an elective quality of life procedure at that point. And also in adolescence as well, a lot of young young ladies come in, um, neurologically they're fine, they may have no back pain, but cosmetically they're not happy with the way that they look. Um, so these are things that we take into account before we submit someone to an operation. And if left undone, it might it might become even worse. It, right? it, it may become worse up until their growth potential. But once they've reached puberty and surpassed that, typically the adolescent scoliosis does not profoundly get worse. But that being said, if it's at about 40 or 50 degrees, that can certainly impact the quality of life significantly moving forward. And sometimes we do see these adults that have not been treated as an adolescent that at the age of 40, 50, 60 say, hey, I, I want to have my scoliosis fixed now. It becomes a much more... Uh, challenging issue to fix because the spine was once very mobile and now it's becoming more stiff. So it becomes a much bigger operation as an adult. Oh, interesting. Well, how do you uh, coach a patient into deciding whether or not to go forward with the surgery? Because there's a lot to consider, right? There, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, again, it goes back to what their quality of life is like, uh, especially for adults. So if, if they can't engage in what they want to do in their everyday life, I tell them it's probably time to bite the bullet and undergo an operation and make them know up front that this is going to be a 6, 9, 12-month recovery. They may not be in the hospital anywhere near that long, but as far as getting back to the quality of life that they want, it's going to take probably a minimum of a half a year to nine months afterwards. So um, that's really how I coach the patients along is that if they're not happy with their quality of life, I can get them there, but it's going to take a, it's going to take a long time to get there though. So what is the other during that time after the surgery, after you've done your part, what part does the patient have to do in terms of recovery? So it, let's say, for instance, that they're smokers. They need to stop smoking. That's a big thing. Smoking is not good for bone health. So all of the work that I do, it may not heal up properly if they're smokers. If they're obese, oh. I make sure that they lose a lot of weight because the more weight that we hold, the harder it is for the spine to basically heal up. Um, if they're osteoporotic, I make sure that they're on Forte or a medication to optimize their bone health so that they fuse properly. So these are kind of things that we do um, as far as medically. Um, and I submit all my patients to physical therapy afterwards as well. That's something that they absolutely have to do is that now that their spine is aligned significantly different than it once was 5, 10, you know, 20 years ago, they have to kind of relearn how to walk and mobilize themselves with a different orientation of their body now. 
What is the surgery actually like? Do do you cut open the person's back to so access? so the typical? There's a lot of different ways to do this, but the typical way I would do this, and most spine surgeons, is that you basically want to find the confines of the curve, and then you want to place pins and rods or screws and rods above and below the confines of the curve. And that alone will not fix the scoliosis. And sometimes you don't have to fix it. Sometimes you just want to stabilize it so it does not progress. But many times we do try to actually correct it. And that entails making bone cuts, or in medical terminology, they're called osteotomies, where we basically cut the bone either in the back, the front, or both to free up the spine and loosen it so that we can maneuver it and mobilize it back into a more straight orientation. So you do actually move the spine from where it's curved to a more straight alignment. Absolutely. It's a very big undertaking. These surgeries can take anywhere from about 8 to 12 hours sometimes. Sometimes we have to do them in multiple stages as well over the course of a few days. Um, what's, what's the recovery like for the patient in the hospital after? It sounds like what you do would cause a lot of pain, um, for after. Absolutely. It, it definitely causes pain. Uh, we do have a new local anesthetic that we use now that lasts for about 36 to 72 hours. So it really takes the edge off for the first few days. And I've noticed a significant difference in the amount of narcotics my patients have to use after surgery. Yeah. Um, I would say most patients are in the hospital for maybe about seven to 10 days in the acute care setting. And then depending on how old they are, maybe if they're in their 60s, and above, we'll send them off to either acute or subacute rehabilitation for a few weeks afterwards. Do they have to lay flat? Because no, of... no, they absolutely do not. I actually want them to be up and mobilizing uh, really the next day after surgery. So my expectation is that they're up in a chair eating meals the next day after oper- the operation. And then maybe on post-operative day two, we have physical therapy, get them out of a bed, give them a walker and have them start mobilizing using the restroom, walking around the nursing unit and things like that. The longer that they're in bed, uh, the worse that they do. So I try to mobilize my patients very quickly. Okay. Well, talk to me about the potential complications. So there's a very large complication profile. The most common thing is significant blood loss that would require transfusion. Many of these surgeries do require that, and I tell all the patients up front that there's a very high probability they're going to end up needing a blood transfusion. And that's typically not a big issue. Uh, These days we do good type and cross-matching, so that's typically not an issue. Um, The more worrisome complications are the fact that uh, when we straighten out the spinal column, the spinal cord also gets straightened out as well. And you could definitely have uh, temporary or permanent neurological problems with some of these big operations. And the way that we get around that, we have a neuromonitoring technician to monitor the integrity of the nerves in the spinal cord throughout the duration of surgery. So if there's any issues, they alert us and then we could maybe loosen up our correction or not do as an aggressive correction. Okay. So those are things to consider or patients need to think about? As- Absolutely. Yeah. We have to, uh, you know, uh, consult the patients and tell them before surgery that you know, the entire uh, spectrum of the complication profile, just so that they know what they're getting into so that there's no surprises afterwards. Uh, but most of these, if it's done meticulously, carefully, uh, properly planned, most of these surgeries do ve- uh, patients do very well. Wonderful. Now, what are the chances of scoliosis redeveloping after surgery to correct it's, it. It's, it's relatively uncommon. Um, more than scoliosis redeveloping, you could actually see what's called kyphosis develop, which is a uh, back-to-front orientation. So sometimes when the, fuse, uh, the spine is fused in multiple segments, the level directly above the last level that's fused will actually bend forward. And we could see that. It's called post-junctional kyphosis. And um, there are ways to get around that where we could actually place bands around the spine directly above where we fuse to try to prevent it from hunching over at some point. Uh, But as far as scoliosis redeveloping, once it fuses and it's healed, uh, the chances of it redeveloping and the areas that have been instrumented are, are slim to none. 
And the rods and the pins that you install, do those stay in forever? They typically stay in forever in adults and adolescents. If we're doing the scoliosis surgery in a very small child that has not reached their maximal growth potential, they'll typically be taken out. Otherwise, that will stymie their spinal growth as they age. Oh. Uh, now, in the in the adults where it's uh, the pins are in there, does the bone just um, grow around it? Or? It does. So we so we typically place synthetic bone products around the bone so that the pins and rods are there really as a temporary uh, cast or construct until the bone heals. And that's typically what we do. Sometimes we actually use the patient's own bone. So when we have to uh, do our bone cuts, some of the bone gets removed, we morselize it, and we actually give it right back, but we put it in a different location of their back. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this and explaining it all. Thank you for having me, Amber. My guest has been Dr. Michael Galgano, an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what to do about hydrocephalus. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Brain surgery to install a shunt is currently the only solution for hydrocephalus, which is a buildup of fluid in the brain. Most research on this condition is related to devising a better shunt, but Upstate neurosurgeon Satish Krishnamurthy is uh, seeking a better solution, one that could more certainly help a greater number of people, one without so many risks, one that doesn't even involve surgery. And he's here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to, dis- to tell us about it. Thank you for being here, Dr. Krishnamurthy. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a delight uh, to explain to you what we do with uh, hydrocephalus. So hydrocephalus is a, a buildup of fluid. What, what causes fluid to build up on the brain? Actually, that's a very interesting question because um, actually we don't understand why we get fluid buildup in the brain. Uh, ideally... Uh, we should know how things happen before we can unravel them and treat them. Uh, but hydrocephalus is an enigma. Hydrocephalus is the most common birth defect, and uh, it can result from a variety of conditions. Uh, approximately 180 different disorders can cause hydrocephalus. Basically, we have fluid in our ventricles, and um, this fluid is generated um, by the blood vessels in a organelle called choroid plexus, which is inside the ventricles. So the ventricles are inside the brain? It's inside the brain, and it's, it's, a, a, it's one way to communicate between the nerve cells. So when you get sleepy, there are chemicals released into this fluid cavities, and the chemical will go to all the different neurons, and you start yawning and falling asleep. Okay. So... Uh, it's a it's a messaging system uh, within the brain. What happens in hydrocephalus because of a variety of processes, you can have hemorrhage uh, into the brain or into the ventricles. So bleeding. Uh, bleeding. And you can have tumors inside the ventricles or you can have infection. All of this will result in excess fluid accumulating in the ventricles. And this is called hydrocephalus. 
The problem with hydrocephalus is that when it is not treated, you get uh, progressive brain dysfunction, which can result in loss of vision, which can also result in loss of cognitive abilities. And if you don't treat it, the per person is permanently impaired or uh, die from hydrocephalus. Okay. Now, you said it's um, the number one birth defect. Do, if, if a baby is born with hydrocephalus, do you know before they're born that they're going to have that, or is, is it a surprise? Uh, so sometimes you can detect uh, in utero by the ultrasound um, when, um, when they go for regular uh, prenatal checkups. Uh, the most important cause, though, of children with hydrocephalus is because of premature births. And when, when a child is born prematurely, they, can, they are at higher risk for hemorrhage or bleeding into the brain. And this is the most common cause of hydrocephalus. It accounts for almost 40% of all people with hydrocephalus. So it's normal to have some fluid in the ventricles. Yes. How would you know if you have too much fluid in there? We can, we can detect too much fluid by the symptoms that, that different uh, age groups exhibit. Um, in, in infants, you see it as an increase in the size of the head and uh, the soft spot becomes very tense, and the eyes start looking down, also called as a sunset sign, because the eyes look like they're setting suns. And in, in adults, you get headaches. Uh, in children, you get headaches and vomiting and visual problems, meaning that they can't see properly. And um, you can check the uh, presence of hydrocephalus by using different scans, sometimes using ultrasound in babies, but in adults, usually a, a CT scan or MRI scan. Okay. You can see the difference in the size of the ventricles. So once you pinpoint and you know that you know hydrocephalus exists, um, what's done about it? So primarily, we uh, treat it only with surgeries. This is brain surgery. You put a tube inside the uh, fluid cavities, and uh, you put the other end of the tube with a valve in between so that we don't drain all the fluid. We keep some of the fluid so that it replicates normal volume of the ventricle and put the other part in the belly or in the heart or in the, uh, around the lungs called the pleura. And so it's, so a, divert, it's a tube underneath that goes from inside the brain it stays in the body and it's, goes down into... Yeah. Okay. It, it goes underneath the skin to get to the belly. Um, and this fluid is diverted, if you will, and goes from the brain uh, cavities to the uh, peritoneal cavity, and it relieves the symptoms. Does that work just through gravity? Um, it works through pressure and gravity, um, although... The fine art of adjusting the shunt to just have enough water inside the ventricles is a, is a tricky maneuver. But regardless, uh, shunts have changed the way that people with hydrocephalus are treated. In the past, uh, all patients with hydrocephalus were doomed to die before the shunts were in, invented. And with shunts, it's, it's a, um, it helps people uh, through their problem, although it's a big brain surgery. Having said that, shunts have problems with it. Um, 
you, we, we don't get a warning sign uh, that the shunt is working properly. Um, you, don't, you don't get a warning that the shunt is uh, infected, uh, for example, or blocked. Uh, so all these conditions, um, whether it's blockage or infection or suboptimal functioning, uh, the person with the shunt needs to come to the hospital to the neurosurgical care. So in a way that shunt attaches uh, a baby or a person to a, the highest level of care, uh, such as Upstate Medical University Hospital, and uh, you need to be in constant touch with your um, neurosurgeon, if you will. So once you install a shunt in someone, it, it stays in them? It stays in them, yes. Like lifetime? Yes. And then there may have to be multiple adjustments, it sounds like, depending on how it's working or if it gets infected or... Uh, yes. So adjustments can only be done on some valves where you can go from outside the skin without cutting into the person again, without doing brain surgery again. And most of the times, if it is infected, you pull out the old shunt you put a temporary tube coming out of the brain and you treat the infection and then put back the shunt. And if it is blocked, you go back and you do surgery again. You cut open the patient, you find the blocked tube, you replace the tube, and, and you assume all the risks of brain surgery every time the person every comes time. back. Wow. And sometimes you can't, you can't uh, really accomplish the task um, because... Uh, of infection, of scarring, and other things. So sometimes um, uh, children with hydrocephalus get multiple, multiple surgeries. Um, there are patients who have had hundreds of shunt revisions uh, by the time they reach their adulthood. Wow. So uh, this is a significant problem. Although shunts are a solution, uh, it, it is a suboptimal solution. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Satish Krishnamurthy, about hydrocephalus. Now, most of your neurosurgery colleagues throughout the world liken hydrocephalus as like a plastic bag full of water that needs to be drained. But you don't see it that way. So can you explain? Yes. So the most popular theory uh, for the genesis of hydrocephalus, if you will, is that the water is produced inside the brain and water grows from one place in the ventricle, one part of the ventricle system to another part of the ventricle system and goes around the brain to be absorbed by a big vein on top of the head called the sagittal sinus. And any blockage of these pathways, if you will, uh, will result in fluid accumulating inside the ventricles. The, the one assumption that the circulation theory, which does not have a proof, uh, is that the brain is not permeable to water, or like you said, it's like a plastic bag. And water can't go through Water it. can't go, go through that, but uh, it's been demonstrated, and some of the, uh, some of the work that comes from uh, that it comes from is uh, got a Nobel Prize in 2003 is the discovery of aquaporin channels. That means these channels permit water to freely go back and forth uh, like, the, uh, like the crew in an aircraft going through security check. 
they don't they just wave the badges and they go through they go straight through because they are known uh, to be uh, uh, not to be the bad people in in a airport security line they don't need check uh, so water does not need to be checked through uh, in the in the brain ventricles uh, like that so because of these aqua aquaphor channels a- aquaporin aquaporin channels. okay basically means water pores or uh, channels that permit water back and forth so when you have water going back and forth through the brain uh, it does not make it a plastic bag it makes it a tea bag so uh, the only reason why you can the, the only way you can keep water in a tea bag is through tea leaves and tea leaves hold water they absorb because they it absorb right? it mm-hmm. okay so we um in our lab we tested this hypothesis that it is all because of absorbing nature of the proteins and other uh, big molecules that are present in the ventricles uh, namely um, blood products uh, resulting from bleeding tumor proteins tumor cells uh, or infection and damage to the brain cells caused by infection. So these big, big molecules are acting sort of like tea leaves? Are acting like tea leaves. And just like in a tea bag, tea leaves don't come out of the tea bag because the pores are too too small uh, for the large molecules. These protein molecules don't come out of the brain so easily. There is a transportation system, as we found out later, uh, but these proteins will attract water. Um, to give you another metaphor, uh, it's like, uh, why is the subway uh, station crowded? It's not because uh, people there cannot come out through the doors, uh, which is what the circulation theory says. Uh, it is because they're waiting for the subway trains to come. Okay. Uh, okay. So it. So you, you say that hydrocephalus is not a problem with fluid circulation. Correct. It's a problem of protein transportation? Correct. So we, we think that the proteins uh, are the primary driving force for water to come and accumulate in the ventricles. So if there is more protein, there is more water. Uh, if there is less protein, there is less water. Um, so the problem is to get rid of the proteins from the ventricles and not necessarily worry about the water. So if you were to get rid of the proteins, you think it would automatically lead to a reduction in fluid? Correct. So the, so the water movement into the ventricles is secondary or passive in relation to the presence of proteins inside the ventricles. It's sort of the side effect of, of what's actually. So then I guess the big question is, how do you get rid of the proteins? So it turns out that our experiments showed that we have a method to get rid of the proteins. And some of us have a, um, a better system than other people. And there are genetic variations with all of this. So it turns out that uh, the proteins go through what is called as a blood-brain barrier, um, and the proteins are sp- taken up by the cells, and the cells then spit them out into the bloodstream, and from the bloodstream, they go out into the urine and get elimin- eliminated. So uh, even in the presence of hydrocephalus, we found that 
this, this process is preserved. The only problem with the process is if there is, if there is too much protein inside the ventricles, then the systems are overwhelmed. Sure, like the subway that can't get all of the people out at the same from time. All at the same time uh, when there is uh, uh, too much traffic. Uh, right? So what we are trying to do is to understand the exact processes that are involved in the proteins getting out of the brain and excreted out. And uh, these processes uh, can be uh, improved on or um, we can help the proteins get out of the brain and therefore we can get rid of the fluid and avoid brain surgery. This has been very interesting. I thank you for your time coming in and explaining this. My guest has been Dr. Satish Krishnamurthy, a professor of neurosurgery at Upstate with expertise in treating hydrocephalus. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what's new with type 2 diabetes in young people? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Ruth Weinstock is the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate, and she's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about diabetes. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weinstock. Is the incidence of type 2 diabetes in adolescents and youth still a concern? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern. Absolutely. Because I know we've talked in recent years about sort of, they, they've called it an epidemic um, tied to obesity. Is that so? Still- type 2 diabetes has, uh, is extremely common in adults. And it used to only occur in adults over the age of 40, but now we have found that it is diagnosed younger and younger, including as young as 10 or even 8-year-olds, which is of great concern. So what is life like now for someone, an adolescent, who's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes today versus 10 or 20 years ago? Well, 10 or 20 years ago, it was almost unheard of. Uh, And there was really not much known about whether type 2 diabetes in youth was different from type 2 diabetes in adults. So fortunately, the National Institutes of Health decided to fund a study that we were um, privileged to be part of, one of 12 centers across the country, uh, looking at type 2 diabetes in youth, youth onset, uh, and comparing it to adults. And what we found was unfortunate. Um, First of all, some of the medications that work well in adults don't work as well in, in some children who develop type 2 diabetes. And the most alarming thing that we found is that they appear to be developing complications at an accelerated rate. So at a shorter duration of diabetes, they're getting some of the dreaded complications, uh, meaning it's affecting their eyesight, their kidney function, uh, their nerve function, and even uh, some heart disease. So that 
really um, uh, is of great concern and puts pressure not only to find better treatments for youth with type 2 diabetes, but also to try to figure out ways to prevent it from well, occurring. Well, that sounds a little uh, alarming, really. Does that mean it sounds like the disease is more aggressive in children? Yeah, so it appears in about half of the children it is uh, more aggressive. Wow, interesting. Is there speculation about why that is? So um, there is some speculation. It's all hypotheses. We don't have the answers. But for example, when uh, uh, children go through puberty, there are a lot of hormonal changes, and those hormonal changes may be contributing to uh, some of the damage that's done and the difficulty controlling their blood sugars when they go through the teenage years. And then there are some psychosocial issues in teenagers. and issues uh, related to adherence to medical advice and medication uh, taking that also probably plays a role. But it's probably heterogeneous, probably a number of factors. Okay. And you talked about it it being important to come up with preventives. Absolutely. Um, And one of the things that we think uh, uh, could help a lot of youth is a healthy lifestyle. uh, the youth in the study who developed type 2 diabetes were all overweight or obese. If that could be prevented, if, if children were more active, if um, they could maintain a healthy weight and not gain weight at an early age, uh, we believe that that would be helpful. Okay. Well, I wanted you to tell us about a study that the Jocelyn Diabetes Center was involved in called the Today Study. Yep. So that's um, the study. Yeah. So what did that look at? So uh, initially it looked at uh, comparing different treatment modalities for type 2 diabetes in uh, children who developed type 2 diabetes within the past couple of years uh, and um, were between the ages of 10 and 17. Um, And that's where we found that, for example, the drug metformin, which works very well in many adults, does not work as well in at least half of these children. Now, the study wasn't designed to try to figure out why. No, it was to look at drugs that have been successful in adults and to see how well they worked in children. Um, That part of the study ended a few years ago, but we have been continuing to follow these children in terms of complication rates. And regardless of the arm that they were originally in, their initial treatment, we're finding these alarming uh, complications. Interesting. Are there other medications that, a, that children can take instead of metformin? Yes, and those um, uh, uh, there are a couple that are FDA-approved for children. Many of the adult medications are not. We're actually doing another clinical trial right now looking at a couple of drugs that are approved for use in adults not yet approved in children. Oh. So we have a different study going on now with a different cohort of youth um, looking at that. All right. Um, now, you, there's a, another study that you published where you looked at continuous glucose monitoring profiles in healthy non, non-diabetic participants. What was that all yes. about? So um, one of the biggest breakthroughs in, in diabetes care, particularly for people with type 1 diabetes, both children and adults, and that's the type of diabetes where you must take insulin. Your pancreas doesn't make insulin anymore, and without insulin, you cannot survive. That's the type um, 1. That's type 1. Um, uh, until recent years, people would do finger sticks 
um, prick their finger, get a drop of blood, put the blood on a strip, and read their blood sugar in a meter. Um, and that tells you what your blood sugar is at a specific point in time, which is important information, um, but more information is better. So for example, you, if you get a number, you don't know if your blood sugar is going up, is it going down, is it steady, how fast is it moving, um, so, and you don't know what has happened in between two blood sugar checks. So let's say you check before breakfast and before lunch, did it go up in the middle, did it go down in the middle, you know, so that uh, there's a lot of information that's missing, no fault of the individual with diabetes, it just is. So some new technologies um, are called CGM, or continuous glucose monitoring, where you wear a sensor, which is a, a small patch, basically. The fine filament goes just under the skin, and it senses your blood glucose readings every five minutes and sends those results to a receiver wirelessly that you can hold or to your smartphone or other smart device. Um, and you can see every five minutes what your blood sugars are doing, and it can alarm if you go too high or too low. Wow. Um, and you can have a family member or a caretaker or a friend also be monitoring your blood sugar. So it gives you a lot more information so you can make better decisions. Oh, should I eat something? Should I take more insulin? So um, it's been wonderful technology. So we have published a number of papers using that technology in people with diabetes in various age groups. Um, and it was important, actually, to test people without diabetes to know what's really normal. Oh, for because a comparison. That had, right, because, for comparison, because that hadn't been done with these uh, new devices. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Ruth Weinstock, the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate. Can you talk about a study that compared insulin delivery by insulin patch and insulin pen? That was another one that we, that you were involved in, correct? Yeah, so um, we're always looking at devices that'll make it more convenient for people with diabetes to take their insulin. And um, uh, the patch devices are very nice. You fill them with insulin and you can place them on your abdomen or um, elsewhere in the body. So um, for, for people who, particularly for people who have to take insulin with every meal, um, this way they don't have to carry around extra insulin. It makes it more convenient. Let's say you're in a restaurant, you want to dose, you just press a button through your clothes and you can oh. and you can dose the insulin. So if you make it easier for people to take insulin when they're supposed to take it, then um, it, it... Better compliance? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you've also looked into um, type 1 diabetes and longevity. So we have looked at older adults with type 1 diabetes. So fortunately, we have gotten much better at treating type 1 diabetes. So now um, it's not uncommon for people to live a long life with type 1 diabetes. I have patients who've had type 1 diabetes for 50, 60, 75 years. In fact, the oldest one um, uh, uh, patient I had with type 1, it had for over 80 years. Wow. Now, what? because... Um, uh, years ago, we were not as good at taking care of type 1 diabetes. Honestly, people didn't live that long. But now we're very happy that people are living longer and, and with good quality of life. So we decide to study what's different about these individuals because just taking care of them and following them for so many years, um, it, it struck me that they seem to be more sensitive to insulin. And when we gave them continuous glucose monitoring devices to wear, we found that they had a lot of 
hypoglycemia, blood sugar is going way too low, which is dangerous. It's dangerous for your brain, for your heart, for other organs. Um, you can get confused. You can even have a seizure and pass out. And many of them had no idea that their blood sugars were going that low. Um, and this was a very important study for a number of reasons. First of all, it showed that as people age with type 1 diabetes, they lose the symptoms of hypoglycemia of, of very low blood sugars. So they need help in detecting it. So they wouldn't it's know not it's their happening. fault. It, no. it, it's part of, of the natural history of the disease. And also we had to convince Medicare that it was important uh, for older adults to be able to have this technology for them to pay for it, which um, fortunately these studies did help convince some of that. But we are continuing with the studies looking at how best to adapt technologies to uh, older people, including those who may have mild cognitive impairment. Interesting. Well, where do you see research heading in the field of diabetes care in terms of what's missing that we still need? So, of course, the cure is missing. Um, right. But um, it's been a very rewarding journey for me because now we're testing in some new clinical trials a hybrid artificial pancreas, and hopefully in the near future, a true artificial pancreas. So what that means is um, what the goal would be a really good treatment for type 1 diabetes so that the patients never go too high or too low. Um, so they can wear an insulin pump, a, a device that gives them just the right amount of insulin to keep their blood sugars normal, a continuous glucose monitor that tells the pump every few minutes what the blood sugars are and what direction they're going so the pump can change the infusion rate of insulin and always keep their blood sugars at a good, healthy range. This so, would be duplicating what the pancreas does. So it would be, healthy... yes, and, uh, and ultimately not just have insulin in this artificial pancreas, but also have some other hormones that are important in glucose mm -hmm. regulation. Insulin's the most important, but there are other hormones that are important as well. And I see that happening within the next few years. So that, that field is moving very, very quickly, and that's very, very rewarding. So that will definitely be a better treatment for type 1 diabetes, but it won't be a cure. The cure um, uh, will have to come in a different way, um, perhaps islet cell transplants um, uh, and other gene therapies. It, it's a little uh, difficult to predict what will get there first, but if one could give individuals islets that uh, were not recognized as foreign, uh, were not destroyed by the body, and could just produce all the hormones that need to be produced in just the right amount, then that would be a cure. The other thing we're working on is prevention of type 1 diabetes. Um, we're involved in a group called TrialNet, uh, which is an international group um, funded primarily by National Institutes of Health, but other funders as well, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, American Diabetes Association. And that's looking at ways to trick the immune system so that your insulin-producing cells never get destroyed you can predict who is about to develop type 1 diabetes and stop the process, so it would wow. be a prevention. And then the last thing, of course, is type 2 diabetes, and there are some very interesting new hormones and um, new approaches for drug therapy that I think can, will do a better job than what we have now. Now, if any listeners, because I know the Jocelyn Diabetes Center um, is involved in a lot of clinical trials, so if there's any mm -hmm. listeners interested in that, Tell us why it might be of benefit for someone to get involved in a clinical trial. 
Well, um, first of all, we, we value our volunteers so, so much because without actually testing um, these new approaches in people, we'll never know if they work and they'll never come to market. Um, so this is the best way to um, advance the field forward. Um, and of course, you're always a volunteer, so you could always um, withdraw from the project at any time if, if you so desire. Uh, it does give people the opportunity to get new treatments before they're available otherwise, before they're commercially available, before the FDA approves them. So we've had people on continuous glucose monitoring devices, insulin pumps, and um, new insulins and other medications uh, before they were actually approved by the FDA. And when they're in a trial, they also get all of this for free. So they get the devices for free, they get the drugs that we're testing for free. Um, and that, for many people, is a huge benefit because, um, particularly right now, uh, um, the health insurance um, uh, situation uh, is um, very problematic for people with diabetes. Insulin costs have just skyrocketed. It's, it's terrible how high the insulin costs have uh, become, and so some people can't afford to take enough insulin. So this is a way to get um, medications also um, uh, free of charge, which is helpful. Well, let me share the phone number for people that are interested to 315-464-9008. And that goes to the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in the research area. Um, people will also be able to find a link to that webpage at uh, healthlinkonair.org, where this interview will be archived. My guest has been Dr. Ruth Weinstock, the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Joe Cottonwood repairs houses by day and writes by night. His poem, Saint Seal, contains bad news, good news, faith, hope, and love, in descriptive, powerful stanzas. Here is Saint Seal. Eyes dilated, bad news related. How do you feel, she asks, driving us home. Mortal, I say, and going blind. You want to go to the beach, she asks. Begin with hugs, then alone. How I heal as a man. She will wait in the car with heat and good music. In winter, one can walk solitary into the prickly touch of mist, of brine. Bodies of foam the size of buffalo scuttle across sand. Is this our dishwater? Bubbles of soap set free? One eye sees psychedelic nonsense. The other, fuzzy rings. Gulls with halos go about their business picking meat from belly-up crabs. Auras glow from driftwood logs like our globe warming. One tan-colored blob, approached, becomes a seal on the sand with bloody punctures, shark bites that ooze and fester. Here to die, he rises on front flippers at my approach, black nose to the sky, solemn whiskers, sad eyes, radiating a saintly glimmer. Nature is cruel, nature is natural. My impossible wish, may you resplendent seal, Flop across sand, return to sea. My lover waits, would wish the same for me.
has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how physical therapy can help with Parkinson's disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.